Welcome back to Psych Your Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And always, I'm so happy to have you join me. I tell you every single episode how much I appreciate you. I always thought that this would just be something that lasted maybe a couple months. Maybe my mom, my dad might listen. But to have those of you listen to me from all over the world, it makes me so happy. Um, I really love it. I love when you guys reach out to me. And so I'm at Geek Flossie on Instagram and Twitter. I welcome your feedback. I welcome your interactions. I absolutely love it when I hear from you guys. And once again, little housekeeping, uh, Patreon's back up uh, two levels, $5, and you get access to um, extra content. You're going to get some pictures of the various crimes, uh, little known facts. I'm going to try and get in there and do a daily true crime fact, um, as well as early access to three episodes at a time so obviously once you listen to all three it'll be one new one before it hits uh three weeks before it hits the regular cast um so that is in there and then at the 25 dollars level you're going to get those things but then you're also going to get a psychic crime t-shirt and you're also going to get the ability to request specific crimes now i kind of have to limit this tier because i don't want to get hit with like tons and tons of requests all in the same time frame it's going to take me time to work through all the requests so there's a limited number of those spots but if you jump in there um i'll be able to do little known crimes like that may be known in your area but maybe didn't make national or international news if you're overseas i look forward to hearing about anything from overseas um, sometimes it's difficult for me to find interesting things and definitely send me tell me about your dumb crimes your dumb than a sack of hair crimes because you know, maybe we can see if we can find what state is in the running to become the new Florida man. Um, it looks like there's a couple states that are catching up with Florida with their stupid crimes. So, you know, anything um, that you are interested in seeing, that is how you uh, get in there and get those requests in there. So um, with that being said, all the housekeeping is out of the way. Uh, this week, we're going to take a look at a very, very unusual case. Um, this is a case that's more about the justice system than it is about the individual person. Like in the past couple ones, we talked about why people would admit to being a serial killer when they're not, they were attention seeking. This is more about the way that the justice system worked in this case and the type of sentencing that they have in the United States. Um, this is a case of Liesl Ahmed. She was a girl who went to pick up her belongings from her ex and ended up in the middle of a firefight between police and her friend's boyfriend. Due to the nature of the case, like I stated, we're going over the laws that applied instead of the psychology and what led up to her being part of such a crime. The reasons behind her sentencing caused such an uproar that Hunter S. Thompson got involved. Now, Liesl was sentenced under the felony murder rule. And as of August 2008, 46 states in the United States had a felony murder rule. Under such a rule, um, it makes uh, felony murders first degree murders. In 24 of those states, it's a capital offense, meaning it's a death penalty offense. When the government seeks to impose the death penalty on someone convicted of felony murder, the Eighth Amendment has been interpreted so as to impose additional limitations on the state's power. The death penalty may not be imposed if the defendant is merely a minor participant in the crime and did not actually kill or intend to kill. 
However, the death penalty may be imposed if the defendant is a major participant in the underlying felony and exhibits extreme indifference to human life. Most states recognize the merger doctrine, which holds that criminal assault cannot serve as the felony for the felony murder rule. So what the felony murder rule states is that if you commit a felony, such as a home invasion, uh, sexual assault, and it results in death, then that is considered felony murder. To avoid the need for reliance upon common law interpretations of what felony contact merges with murder and what offenses do and do not qualify, many U.S. jurisdictions explicitly list what offenses qualify as felony murder. Federal law specifies crimes such as terrorism, kidnapping, and carjacking can be included. The American Law Institute's model penal codes does not include the felony murder rule, but allows the commission of a felony to raise a presumption of extreme indifference to the value of human life. The felony murder rule is effectively used as rule of evidence. The model penal code lists robbery, rape, or forcible deviant sexual intercourse, arson, and burglary. Also, felonious escape as predicated on felonies upon which charges of felony murder can be maintained. So felonious escape is like when you try and flee a jail or you flee custody of a police officer and someone dies in the course of that, that would be a felony murder. In the state of Colorado, the common law felony murder rule has been codified in the revised statutes 18-3-102. The statute classifies a homicide as first degree murder when committed during one of these predicated felonies. Committing or attempting to commit arson, robbery, burglary, kidnapping, sexual assault, or a class three felony sexual assault on a child. Or if in the course of one of these crimes or the immediate escape from the crime, anyone causes the death of a person or others, including one of the participants. This is important. Because at 6.15 p.m. November 12th, Denver police officer filed a statement about the homicide, which included this statement. I ran over to Officer Mark Bennett as he was ordering a white female who was unidentified to exit the hallway of the building and lay on the ground. As she was removed by myself and Officer Bruce Vanderjaget, I believe Officer Tony Martinez, my partner, yelled that the suspect could possibly have access to the other side of the building. I then ran around the north side of the same building and observed no footprints in the rear and no obvious access to the courtyard. At 6.45 on November 12th, another police report was filed on the arrest of Almond. As I started towards the apartments, I observed a male attempting to force entry into the southernmost apartment with a female standing in front of him watching the parking lot. I began to yell at them to get their hands in the air. When I began yelling, the female turned around and put her hands in the air while the male ducked down and began to run to the northbound area behind a plywood type hallway. I continued to yell for the female to get to her knees and she began to go to her knees and then I grabbed her and started to pull her to the ground. I passed the female to Officer Vanderjaget who took control of her and eventually handcuffed her with Officer Blake. 
After realizing that there was no way for the party to escape, I went to the southern east corner. That was signed by Mark Bennett. Two days later, Brake and Bennett revised their statements, filing additional police reports and supplemental videotaped interviews. The officer, who were partners at the District 3 substation, said they had not discussed the arrest or their earlier reports. They said it was a coincidence that we remembered additional details on the same day, two days after the shooting. Brake now said that as Amon emerged from the hallway to surrender to police, I observed her to lean to her right as if she was trying to drop something and then stand back up without a weapon. We weren't sure what she was setting down or if she was setting anything down. It just appeared like she was going to set something down or reach for something. Demonstrating the safe movements that Brake had performed on the tape, Bennett told the detective, she did this, a slight movement. I thought she was setting something down. I didn't know what was down there. Bennett said otherwise in his report of November, that other than that, his report of November 12th was complete. I put everything in there, but seeing the female dip. I came in today to add that. Dip, it sounds like she's at like a ballroom scene and she about to do a death drop. The dip implied that Amon handed the murder weapon to Janik. What? No. It supported the prosecution's contention that she actively assisted in the murder of Officer Vandershacket. So let's backtrack. What started this all off is that Amon wanted to go get her belongings from her ex-boyfriend. She didn't want to go by herself. So she took her best friend and her best friend brought her boyfriend and his friend with them. At some point, someone called the police because the boyfriend and his friend were taking things that weren't theirs. Someone called to report their people in the house. There was possible burglary. When the cops arrived, responding to an attempted burglary, that is when all this went down. Officer Michael Gargaro also amended his statement two days after the shooting, changing the way he characterized her behavior after her arrest. In a videotaped interview on the day of the murder, Gargaro had handcuffed Amon and drove her to police headquarters and described her as frightened and compassionate. On the way to headquarters, he said, the suspect asked me if I knew the officer who had been killed. I told her that I did. I told her he had a little child and that he was a really wonderful guy and he didn't deserve what happened to him. I wanted to know if she was going to cooperate with me and help me out. She said, I don't know anything. I just met that guy today. I'm really sorry for your friend. I'm sorry that this happened. I didn't mean for anything bad like this to happen. In his amended report, however, two days later, he characterized her as unfeeling and uncommunicative. Sergeant Hempel walked up to my police unit and began to ask the female suspect who the other person was. The female suspect stated all she knew was sardine. Sergeant Hempel became angry. The female continued to be uncooperative, saying, I just don't know anything. At this time, gunfire erupted. Within moments of officers announced that an officer was down. I advised the female of the situation. She had no emotion. Amon's lawyers later would say that the revised reports were inspired and orchestrated by the prosecution to help their case. Prosecutors said they believed the officers were providing additional information to the reports so they can be conscientious and said that the changes were spontaneous. Defense attorneys challenged the truthfulness of another key prosecution witness even before her trial began. Cheever, the alleged burglary victim, was arrested on November 21st, 1997 and accused of theft, forgery, criminal impersonation, and drug possession. 
When officers searched the hotel where he had been staying, they reported finding marijuana, four stolen purses, three checkbooks, including one in the name of Liesl Almond, the ex-girlfriend who went there to get her belongings. Nine days earlier, Cheever told police that nothing belonging to Almond was in his room. So obviously if he has her purse and her checkbook, something that belonged to her was there. Almond by that time had also produced canceled checks to show she'd purchased the video recorder and snowboard she was accused of stealing from him. On November 28th, 16 days after Van der Jagat's shooting, Stephen Dupre was arrested outside South Federal House. He was charged with illegal possession of a semi-automatic handgun, possession of controlled substances, burglary, and parole violations. Meanwhile, several reports were filed from the crime lab. Pathologist Thomas Henry stated that a drug screen found 772 nanograms of methamphetamine per milliliter in Jeanic's blood. Jeanic is the one who was shot at the scene. He was the one who opened fire. Any level over 500 nanograms per milliliter is considered significant. In most people, 772 nanograms would be considered toxic and potentially lethal. And in what would become a critical element to impeach Brake and Bennett's statements implying that Amon handled the murder weapon, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation reported its, ana its anal analysis ugh, can't talk, failed to reveal the presence of gunshot residue on any samples from Amon's body or clothing and that Amon's fingerprints were not found on the murder weapon. The officers stood by their story. Tim Twining and Henry Cooper, the deputy district attorneys handling the prosecution, said it was clear to them from the start that she was guilty. And that's, you can't go in going, oh, she's definitely guilty, definitely, definitely, before I even get anything back. The interviews with Almond and Soriano tipped them off. Interesting, Liesel and Demetria Soriano both used the same fictitious names for the men. This is a plan that was hatched down in the apartment before they ever got to Buffalo Creek. Did anybody think that these are just street names? And I know tons of people that have street names and I don't know their given name. I don't know their birth name. You ask me their street name, I'll be like, that ah, little G. Like, I, there's tons of people like that. Even working in substance abuse, when you work in a walk-in clinic or you work where someone may just be your, doing an intervention, um, I do family interventions. Sometimes people don't want to be called by their actual names. And if they're not the actual person that this is for, I may only know this person's brother by their street name and not their given name. That is not so unusual to only know a person's street name and to say that they're giving them the same alias as a plan is ridiculous. This, these were the names they'd all agreed on. They're not code names. Like it, that's just reality. A lot of people just have street names. It's a nickname and it's, it's just like people don't know that that guy over there, you know, like a lot of people don't know names like Frank is short for Francis or like there's a lot of different like Jack is short for James. Like you may be calling this person Jack and they'll be like, who's Jack? There is no Jack there. You're like Jack. And the whole time his name was James and you just never knew his full name was James. Like that's not unusual if it's not somebody that you don't actually know. Amon admitted she lied to the police in interviews, but is adamant she only intended to retrieve her belongings, and that much-debated dip never happened. The fact that they keep calling it a dip, like, dip, did she, like, take a dip of chew? Like, like I said, I keep picturing a death drop, like, this is some ballroom show, like, 
a dip like that that is so innocuous and like the, the wording is so ambiguous it could be anything I can't think of anything that would have made them think that I leaned over because I walked out slowly with my hands in front of me I didn't want to make sudden moves because they were angry I never leaned over to do anything and I never touched that gun I think they just made that up to justify the murder charge but twining supported the officers Amon's words, her descriptions of the day's events would come back to haunt her. It was 4.50 p.m. on November 12, 1997, inside the interview room at the Denver Police Department. Amon sat across the table from Detective John Priest, Detective Kelly O'Hare, and Denver Chief Deputy District Attorney Lamar Sims was also in the room. The video camera was rolling. That's super, like, like that's extra like having all three of those people in there while they interview her that's super extra like maybe the two cops but having the district attorney in there as well can you imagine how ganked up on she felt i wanted you to understand my situation said almond drinking from a cup i would have pulled over if it was me i wouldn't have shot anybody i just wanted to give up at that point she had been read her rights and she waived her right to an attorney kids all retired cops that's the number one thing when people say what advice would you give to people after they retire they all have the same advice those cops on those investigation discovery shows all have the same advice always get an attorney irregardless of whether you're guilty or not even if they're just asking you in for a friendly conversation always bring an attorney so that you can have your rights protected even if at the time you are not the focus of their investigation, they quickly can take something that you said, flip it on you, and you can become the focus. Always get an attorney. The videotape continues. Priest asked how she knew Matthias Shawnick. I know this person who knows him, she said while she was looking at her hands. A friend named Dave sent Yannick to help her move from Buffalo Creek. She said Amon planning to live with a high school friend named Demetrius Soriano in Denver. The officer asked her if she knew Dave. We're kind of close. Yeah, he's kind of like my big brother. He looks out for me. Priest wanted to know his last name. I'd like to tell you, but I'm afraid for my life, she said. You couldn't be safer anywhere in the world than you are right now, Priest said. Amon paused. It's Vargas. So you wanted someone there for muscle, he suggested. She told the officer she didn't know Soriano's last name. Although they'd been friends since high school, she offered a description of the fictitious Dave, complete with tattoos. She made up a fake last name for her former boyfriend, Sean Cheever. She said his room was unlocked when they arrived at the lodge and that the door was open. She described Yannick's red Trans Am Firebird, but she said, I think it might have been green. I sure don't want to catch you in a lie, Priest said. I'm not lying. I'm not a liar. I might have told you some things before because I was scared. We're not just here to talk about what happened. We're here to help as best we can for any problems you might be involved in. Priest stated, I just wish I'd never gotten involved with those people, Amon answered. The interview had been underway for nearly two hours. Amon was biting her fingers and shaking her head. It's not a good day, she said. Two people that I don't even know are dead because of me. Why is that? Said Priest, drawing more detail from her in the critical area of responsibility. Just because I wanted a little muscle to back me up when I wanted to get my stuff, she stated. She'd used the very word priest suggested, and prosecutors later would use this to show she knew that they intended to use violence. Liesl, we're not trying to say you're a bad person. 
I'm not a bad person, she states. We're not out to hurt you, O'Hare added. I know you didn't intend for this to happen, but there are some things that got set into motion. This is a big time thing. Liesel responded, I'm just scared as hell now. The interview ended at 6.43 p.m. Denver District Attorney Bill Ritter had been watching through a two-way mirror. He already decided he had enough to prosecute. Soriano was arrested at her parents' home in Highlands Ranch. For those of you who don't know, Highlands Ranch is an upper-middle-class neighborhood in Colorado. A lot of McMansions. Uh, so the idea that someone who came from Highlands Ranch would be involved in something like this was a very big deal in Colorado. Her boyfriend, Dion Gares, called from the Super 8 Motel in Castle Rock. Yes, there's a Castle Rock in Colorado. Saying he wanted to turn himself in. A warrant was issued for Yannick's friend, Stephen Dupre, who was hiding in the basement of a friend's house on South Federal Boulevard. The mysterious tattooed Dave Vargas did not exist. Denver police evidence teams worked in the dark at the crime scene, videotaping bloodstains, bullet holes, spent shells, and the body of Yannick sprawled on the concrete with the murder weapon at his feet, the suicide weapon at his side. Blood trailed from his head. So in this shootout, when Yannick realized he was cornered and he had nowhere to go, he decided that the only option, because he absolutely did not want to go to prison, he was a well-known white supremacist, was to commit suicide. Denver police officer Nick Rogers interviewed Cheevers about the burglary from his room at Hudson Hotel in Buffalo Creek. I locked my room when I decided to tell her to get lost, he wrote in a statement to the police on November 12th. I had nothing in my room that belonged to her. At her home in Littleton, Colleen Alberbach talked to Denver police by phone. Her daughter, Liesel, was in custody. Tell her to just tell the truth, her mother said. Tell her that her mother says tell the truth. Because that always works. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, uh, that would have had the opposite effect of me when I was in my 20s. And like the cops had said, by the way, I spoke to your parents and they said to tell the truth. And I'd been like, well, then I'm absolutely not going to tell the truth because my parents don't listen to me. So, yeah, no, nah, that absolutely would not work. At 11.25 p.m., the video camera began taping Amon's second police interview. Once again, Ritter was watching through a two-way mirror and now she was crying and no defense attorney was still present. Are you okay? I guess so, she answered sniffling. Priest handed her tissues. Thank you. Priest asked Amon to explain what happened. He lied to me and he made me feel like shit, she said. I wanted to retaliate, I guess. She identified Siriano and Trevor. She explained that Siriano's friends had offered to help her move. She continued to use the fake names of John and Dan for Gares and Dupre and said the only name she knew for Yannick was this nickname, Sardine. I wanted my stuff back. And at this point in time, I didn't realize that whatever of my stuff I got back, I was going to have to split with them. And I didn't realize they were going to take stuff that didn't belong to me. Amon said they planned to go to the Hudson Hotel to pick up her belongings during the day while Cheever was at work because there wouldn't be any conflict. She talked to John about Cheever. I said, take it easy on him. And he said, I'll do the best I can. Don't kill him. This was the kind of testimony the prosecution needed. They were building a case that violence was expected as part of the move. Amon said that they were all talking the night before about moving her things to Denver, and I opened my big mouth and told him he had a couple of speakers. She was implicating herself in a conspiracy to commit burglary. So they kept her talking. 
at the lodge, John, Dan, and Amon were in Cheever's room, she explained. And you knew they were taking things that didn't belong to you? Right, she said. Lisa Amon pleaded guilty Monday to burglary accessory to first-degree murder in connection with the slaying of Denver Police Officer Bruce Vanderjagat. Amon, 29, agreed to the maximum sentence of 20 years. Prosecutors stipulated that the sentence will be served in the community correction system. That would mean Amon might be out of prison in a halfway house within months if her scheduled sentencing on August 22nd proceeded without a hitch, but was not guaranteed. But the judge had different ideas. And Liesel was sentenced to life in murder, life in prison for the murder of a police officer that happened while she sat handcuffed in the backseat of a police car. Shock does not begin to explain how people felt. Then Liesel wrote this letter. 1-4-2001. Mr. Hunter S. Thompson. I laughed out loud while reading Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas during my stay 13 months at this point at Denver County Jail. Thank you for helping to bring a smile to my face. I am now a hostage at the Colorado Women's Correctional Facility in Canyon City. I feel somewhat connected to you in the surreality of the lives, however different that we may lead. Yes, my life is surreal in a nightmarish sort of way. Amongst the many disappointments in my life, one happens to be directly connected to you. See, these motherfuckers banned our books from this and every other Department of Corrections library. How do you feel about that? I think it sucks that I can't read your books. So I can only hope that one day I will be vindicated and I'll be able to go home wherever that is, and pleasure my humor with more of your writing. I, in case you're wondering who the hell I am, not that my case history is who I am. My name is Liesl Almond, and I was convicted of felony murder in 1998 for the murder of a police officer. However, I maintain my innocence. I just turned 25 years old and also have an awesome family who supports me 100% every step of the way. Please check out the website they set up for me, only if you're interested, of course. Bye-bye. Liesel. He responded, Dear Liesel, January 17th, 2001. Thank you for your kind note. I remember following your case in the newspapers and I was horrified by it. I checked your website today and got some valuable information. Tomorrow, I will call your lawyer, Kathy Lord in Denver, and see what I can learn about your current situation. Maybe I can write a story about it and stir up some interest. We'll see. I don't know what the rules are about sending anything to you in prison, but I'll find out and try and send you something that will make you laugh. Possibly I can help you, but I can't be sure or even optimistic at this point. I don't even know if this letter will reach you at all. So if it does, please let me know immediately. I know what it's like to be locked up and how hard it is to keep your sense of humor cranked. Write me anytime you feel like it, okay, Hunter? And thus began their correspondence. Thompson publicly fought for her release. And just one month after his death, he succeeded. For those of you who are not aware, Hunter Thompson committed suicide. Um, it was unfortunate and incredibly sad. But this caused him to not see his greatest triumph, which was fighting for the release of Liesel. The Colorado Supreme Court agreed with him, and they threw out Almond's sentence and ordered a new trial. The 30-year-old was convicted of murdering Officer Bruce Vandergaard, even though she was handcuffed in the back of a car. Colorado law allows homicide charges to be filed against an accomplice, even if someone else is killed 
the victim. The court upheld that statute, but in their 4-1 ruling, the justices found the jury had been given improper instructions relating to the burglary charge. The burglary conviction allowed the jury to also convict Amon of felony murder, which carries a prison sentence of life without the possibility of parole. This is the worst and most reprehensible miscarriage of justice I've ever encountered, wrote Thompson on ESPN.com. She is the only person ever convicted in the United States for felony murder while in police custody when the crime happened. Liesel took a plea that prosecutors stipulated meant that Amon would be out of prison and go to a halfway house within months to serve a six-month sentence under house arrest and then complete eight years of state monitoring, which is strict probation. So she was eventually um, given relief, as they say, um, by a second trial. As I explained before, the process requires that you get a new trial. And so now she was properly sentenced, um, not given life for a crime that happened while she was in police custody. But this goes back to being young and thinking, okay, you know, I have an issue with my ex. I don't know that this is going to go down easy getting my stuff. And so I'm bringing someone with me to back me up. I'm not even going to lie. I had a vicious breakup and I went to go return the person's stuff. I brought a male friend with me. I didn't even get out the car. I had the male friend take the stuff up to him. So I've been there where you're scared that things could get, you know, possibly even violent and you bring someone to back you up. I was not, you know, like she said, it doesn't appear that she intended for them to hurt people. They kept calling it muscle. That's not necessarily the case. I think pretty much every woman listening to this has had a moment where they've had a breakup and they didn't feel safe or comfortable to go by themselves and they brought a male friend. That doesn't insinuate just the presence of having a male, even if he has a horrible criminal record that the intention was for them to get beaten up or hurt as retaliation or payback. Most of, I know that so many of us, when a breakup goes badly, you have a male friend around you when you're gonna um, engage with that person specifically for your own safety. So I feel like, you know, I, I get it. Their fellow officer died and they wanted to be able to have someone to hold accountable, but this was just not the right way to go about it. That felony murder statute has resulted in a lot of cases like this. Um, it was used, I can't remember off the top of my head what state, but it was used in a state where a kid actually knocked a woman down the stairs or they attempted to use it. It actually got quashed. They were going, the kid knocked a woman down the stairs in the course of stealing her purse. She was an elderly woman and she had a heart attack and died and they want to hit him with felony murder, but he was a teenager you know, obviously you're a teenager, you make a dumb mistake, you try and commit a quick perk jacking, and you know, you accidentally knock this lady down the stairs. You were not intending to come for her, you weren't trying to kill her, that wasn't your intention. So the idea that you're gonna give a 16 year old life in prison for a purse snatching gone wrong is insanity. In that case, they didn't get away with it. But the felony murder statute is used across the country. If you ever watch episodes of Law & Order, you will see that in some of the older episodes, they use the felony murder statute to get around the death penalty, to make a case of death penalty, or to be able to give somebody life in prison. Most of the times when it is used, it's used to ensure a harsher sentence, one that they would not have gotten if they just pressed charges for that felony, whether it's a home invasion, a robbery. And a lot of times they do it with robberies, burglaries, home invasions that result in death because there's such a lower 
sentencing uh, requirement in the United States for those type of crimes that um, they, in, in, when violence happens and they want to get other charge, they want to get a bigger sentence. That's when those uh, charge stacking comes in where it'll be like a home invasion and then aggravated assault. And they want to put as many charges on there to get as much time as possible. Charge stacking is another thing that is looked down upon um, in many places because something can go from a simple drug bust to that could get you like three years for possession and suddenly you're facing 15 years because they're stacking all these charges which were unnecessary. Everything could have been rolled up into one charge. So um, the federal felony murder statute is con controversial at times when applied to a situation like this. Um, it also is a form of charge stacking so that you can get bigger charges for people. Not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. When you do have someone who committed a violent home invasion, you do want them to be punished and get the biggest sentence possible. This was not that. There's a girl who took backup. She took the wrong people with her to go get her stuff, anticipating she might get, you know, some type of confrontation from her ex if he showed up and they were just the wrong people. Did she handle it wrong? Of course she handled it wrong. She was a 19 year old girl without an attorney. She did every single thing wrong that she should, which is why I'm going to say it again. If you get arrested in the United States, if you get asked in for questioning in the United States, get an attorney. It is a fallacy that only guilty people ask for attorneys. Many innocent people end up in jail because they did not ask for an attorney. Get an attorney. Always have an attorney. It doesn't matter what they tell you. They'll tell you it's a polite conversation. They tell you it's just between the two of you. It's just two friends talking. No matter what they say, get an attorney. Always have an attorney. I'm going to probably hammer that in more and more and more, but it's super important in the United States judicial system. If you ever get tied up in it, that you make sure you're represented because what you think is best for you more than likely is playing along into the mind games they're playing when they're questioning you. And so that is it for this week's, uh, this week's crime. Next week, we're going to get back into the psychiatry of things. We are going to be looking at Dale's, Des Nielsen. He is Britain's version of Jeffrey Dahmer, historian's almost even more bizarre than Jeffrey Dahmer's story. I was shocked to learn about him. Um, it's not just the type of crimes he committed, but um, the kind of cat and mouse he played with the detectives, how freely he initially offered up the first body for discovery. The whole thing was very bizarre. He had this very uh, big, deep connection with this uh, writer. Um, he really, really was a master manipulator that was just really trying to play everybody around him while also giving bits and pieces of his crimes to people. So that case is insane and fascinating. Join me next week to take a look at it. In the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.